Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. The last time I did one of these was, I think, it was literally days before the COVID lockdown, so I'm slightly nervous about what might happen at the end of this week, coming back again to give another AKC lecture. But it's a real joy to be with you to talk about Westminster Abbey, art and memory. Westminster Abbey is one of London's best-known buildings. As well as the familiar site of so many royal and national occasions, this Westminster has acted as a kind of pole for London's identity since at least the year 960, when St Dunstan founded a monastery on the site. It was King Edward the Confessor's building of his great palace opposite this monastery in the middle of the River Thames on Forney Island, which developed and cemented the connection between the abbey and royal power. And it was the same king's saintly cult which energised so much Christian devotion and monarchic idealism in the subsequent centuries. Westminster Abbey is iconic not just as a building, but as a site and as a series of memories. This is a space in which myth is at least as important as history, and where sculpture, memorials, and pictures interweave with the daily offering of worship. The first memory celebrated here since the very beginning is, for Christians, the living memory of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives a primary context for all other memorialization. So this is firstly a liturgical space, where what happens on a daily basis, worship, continually recontextualizes everything within it. But it's also a place of deep cultural memory for many who would not themselves be committed to this worship, and that's very, very important. In the words of Joseph Armitage Robinson, who was Dean of Westminster between 1902 to 1911, in Christ's name are treasured here the memorials of many generations. So in what follows, I'm going to explore my title by reference to the building itself and its fabric. I'm going to suggest that we might think of this together as a kind of pilgrimage, two journeys into the Abbey. So the first journey... There are two great entrances into Westminster Abbey, and the best known is the Great West Door, framed by Nicholas Hawksmoor's famous towers, which were completed by his successor, John James, in 1745. This is now the main ceremonial and liturgical entrance to the church. The first piece of art we come across is a series of sculptures unveiled in July 1998. Ten statues of martyrs of the 20th century surmount the Great West Door in niches which had, until then, been empty. Now, if you've ever been to Chartres Cathedral in France, or even York Minster in our own country, via the Great West Door, there's no question artistically about whose realm you're entering, whose domain you're entering. Chartres 
framed by the image above its door of Christ in majesty, of scenes from the life of Mary with other saints and even the signs of the zodiac, remind us that in entering that consecrated ground, we're entering what is first a cosmic reality, a space which is set apart, which is hallowed, in which heaven and earth encounter one another in the celebration of the liturgy. So here at Westminster, the visual message is similar to that of Chartres and York, but slightly different. These ten figures are from different Christian churches and from different continents, occupying what could easily be mistaken for niche homes of medieval images these include victims for the struggle for human rights in North and South America, of Nazi and Soviet persecution in Europe, of persecution and dictatorial rule in Africa, of fanaticism in India, of brutality in World War II in Asia and in Germany, and of the Cultural Revolution in China. You can see just in the middle there Martin Luther King, St. Elizabeth of Russia next to him on his right, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Oscar Romero as well of El Salvador. When they were unveiled in July 1998, they were intentionally placed there to represent, as it were, the most recent lair of the abbey in artistic and architectural terms. But they relate to the deepest and most primal lair of the Christian faith. If you know the abbey, you'll know that these figures gaze down Victoria Street. But they gesture towards the universality of the church and the common witness of martyrdom. They're, of course, a group of people who never met, nor could they have imagined that they would be gathered here in this slightly eccentric yet rather powerful collective. In that sense, these are memorials which point to the future as well as commemorate the past, a future in which the church might be united, where Christians speak a common language. Four years before the statues were unveiled, the then Pope John Paul II said in an encyclical letter, Tetzio Millenio Adveniente, in 1994, I quote him, the most convincing form of ecumenism is the ecumenism of the saints and martyrs, because this group speaks louder than the things which divide us. Westminster Abbey, whilst an Anglican Christian church, has always stood slightly outside the power structures of the Church of England. We'll talk about that a bit later on. These days, although it is legally and self-consciously Anglican space, it's wider than that. It's ecumenical space. Although geographically and in much of its iconography, it is, of course, self-consciously British space, it is also Commonwealth space. And these figures increasingly resonate importantly with the multicultural identity of London. And although it's hard to get away from the royal nature of this space, this is also gathering space and burial ground for all sorts of people. These memories and identities are knotted very closely together, but in this space, built principally for worship, somehow they aim to tell one story, with all its clunkiness and dissonance, which is, in Christian terms, a narrative of sin and grace, fall and redemption, death and resurrection. So going inside, we continue on this first pilgrimage. As you enter the abbey, the eye is immediately drawn upwards towards the east, and of course that is not an accident. The west-east axis is a liturgical one, as well as an architectural feature, which draws our gaze towards the high altar and beyond in the direction of the rising sun and of Jerusalem, 
the place of Christ's death and resurrection. And yet, after no more than 15 paces or so of being drawn towards the east, we encounter the Abbey's most famous grave right in our path. This is something that interrupts the journey, and yet it's central to the Abbey's memory and the memory of nation and commonwealth. This grave you can see in the foreground here is the only grave which is never walked over. The unknown warrior was buried here in 1920 as a permanent memorial to the dead of the First World War. It was the brainchild of an army chaplain, David Railton, and the product of the Prime Minister at the time, David Lloyd George. The King, George V, the King Emperor, was initially very unsure about this. He thought that such a memorial would dredge up in a negative way too, much, too many of the memories of the Great War, which was still so raw. But eventually, the warrior, unknown by name, rank or number, possibly a British soldier, but equally possibly a soldier from another country in the then British Empire, was buried in the abbey in a state funeral with the king as the chief mourner. In what must have been an unbelievably emotional rite, one side of the nave was lined with 100 war widows, and one side of the nave was lined with 100 holders of the Victoria Cross, the highest decoration for gallantry. This is a grave, a memorial, a pole, rich in memory from the very moment of its unveiling. And standing at the far west end of the church, this statement about the brutal reality of human violence and sin almost literally trips you up. The grave itself is a piece of art. In fact, it's a kind of icon with many different layers to it. The warrior's coffin, which of course you can't see, is made from an English oak tree felled at Hampton Court, that Tudor palace. It rests in French soil, brought from the fields of the Western Front in which the warrior fought. And the marble slab, which surmounts the grave, is Belgian marble. In a turn at once chilling and beautiful, the brass lettering you can see on this picture is made from melted-down brass gun cartridges. The warrior's coffin has a crusader's sword strapped to its lid, the gift of the king, adding a further dimension to the burial. Are we meant to ask, is this a classical Christian warrior engaged in a struggle which has cosmic resonance beyond the straightforward morality of warfare? Are we supposed to read this as a reference to knightly valour in a romanticised turn towards a poetic, courtly, or mythological past? This is complex imagery. The site of battle has been brought into a place of rest. The laying down of a life through the brutalised, mechanised slaughter of modern warfare was equated with a duty to God. Justice and freedom are described, you can see at the bottom of the stone, as a sacred cause. This inscription, written by the then Dean of Westminster, Herbert Ryle, is supposed to give maximal traction to Christian national remembrance. It takes the implicit tragedy of death and makes it an offering, a sacrifice, a life given, not taken, which is, of course, itself a deeply Christian, familiar, theological theme. And it's now surmounted with that very familiar to us, blood-red series of poppies. Today, every time a head of state comes to visit Her Majesty, His Majesty the King as a, on a formal visit, they come to this grave uh, to pray for peace and to lay a wreath. Here, in the, that particular way, art and memory attempt to somehow heal conflict. And on the centenary of the end of the Great War, 
in November 2018. It was here that the then Queen and the President of Germany shook hands uh, and watched together as flowers were laid. Now, there are over 3,300 people buried or memorialised in Westminster Abbey. They range from monarchs and courtiers to scientists, poets and musicians. The grave of Isaac Newton gathers the, si the scientists Darwin, Clark Maxwell, Faraday and most recently Stephen Hawking. Geoffrey Chaucer is the one who brings together poets and authors. Henry Purcell does the same for musicians. But until the middle of the 18th century, you could pay to be buried in Westminster Abbey, and the space you got depended on what you could pay. So the playwright Ben Jonson, Shakespeare's friend, is buried in the nave, not far from the unknown warrior, but he's buried standing up. That's all he could really afford in that very small space. Whilst many of the no longer remembered have huge marble tablets and statues. Now, the politics of memory is, of course, an extremely complicated thing. Who is remembered and who's not? Who gets to decide on who is remembered and who's not? Who tells the story whose voice isn't being heard? What do we say about those whom we would really rather not remember, but who somehow find their place in a context which many regard as being deeply privileged? Now, obviously, this is a particularly live debate around those institutions and individuals who benefited from the transatlantic slave trade. In Westminster, we're currently engaged in a long and important project to research our own links and to narrate the surprisingly small number of particularly contested memorials in a fuller way. I hope at some point there'll be an opportunity to come back and to speak to you again about that project in detail. But for now, within this particular context, the, that of a working church, it's essential to say that memorialization is not the worship of celebrity. The so-called great and good rub shoulders here with many whose deeds were anything but. The Christian faith teaches that while some deeds are particularly egregious, none of us is completely let off the hook. None of these people buried here is entirely good or entirely bad, and all stand in need of redemption. The context of memorialization in a church is very different from that within a secular space. I was once walking around the Abbey with a, a very eminent Benedictine abbot from Germany, and he said, oh, this place, it's just like the Pantheon in Paris, the Pantheon. It's not like that, because the Pantheon is a secular temple of the nation's heroes. The context here is quite different. But anyway, this isn't a lecture about memorials per se, Art and Memory is the title of this lecture. Uh, otherwise, there will be very much more to discuss before we leave this point. Uh, but we'll come back to burial and memorial when we approach the Abbey from our second axis this morning. For now, I want to take us to two other very different artistic points on this initial journey, principally for the sake of contrast. Almost all of the Abbey's medieval stained glass was destroyed during Oliver Cromwell's protectorate when Britain was very briefly a republic between 1649 to 1661-62. There are fragments and very small panels of that glass um, on display in the Queen's Diamond Jubilee galleries in the Abbey, our Triforium galleries, which if you haven't seen, I, I really encourage you to come and visit. Um, they were designed by Muma, who did the medieval and Renaissance galleries in the V&A, and they're a really beautiful exhibition space. Like so many other of our great churches in this country, the vast majority of Westminster's glass is from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And of course, 
it deploys a certain amount of Victorian neo-Gothic imagination. For example, the nave windows of the abbey, made by Saninian Comper, pair English monarchs alongside abbots of Westminster, painted in a very handsome figurative style. There are, however, two very recent editions of stained glass which might help us consider this theme of art and memory in different ways. The first is the only stained glass to be designed by the great artist David Hockney. The window was designed on an iPad. In fact, I can tell you it was designed on a flight between London and California on an iPad um, and was then made in glass in Bavaria and at the Bali studio in York. The commission was for a non-figurative and non-heraldic design to celebrate the long reign of Queen Elizabeth II. It was dedicated in 2018. If you know Hockney, you'll probably recognize his distinctive style immediately. It's unmistakable. Hockney chose to celebrate, indeed to remember, the Queen's reign with a country scene. It's resonant of the pictorial language of Chagall and Matisse and of lots of Hockney's other work in uh, what was a very extraordinary blockbuster 2012 exhibition at the Royal Academy called A Bigger Picture. You, some of you might remember his extraordinary canvases of trees in that, in that exhibition. So here in this window, he alludes to Queen Elizabeth II as a countrywoman at home in nature with trees and hawthorns bushes, hawthorn bushes, which in Hockney's words look as if they've been sprayed with champagne. Again, in the artist's own words, this is to be a celebration. Now, there are all sorts of references to gardens in particular and nature in general in the Jewish Christian tradition. And it's perhaps notable that Hockney chooses not to create an explicit resonance with any of that. This is a window which, to be quite frank, could quite easily belong in a secular building. This is a tribute which, again, to be quite frank, doesn't really demand very much of the viewer and which can be seized upon by a maximal number of people. Maybe that's the point. It's really just a rather nice, colourful piece of art by one of the most distinguished artists of our day. And yet, it does animate the memory. This is romance, and it is imagination. Perhaps not only is this a celebration of a very long reign, maybe it's also a slightly wistful tribute to a bucolic world which feels rather distant from the middle of the capital city. Perhaps here there's also a resonance to a more traditional way of life, which is passing away, not just the memory of a rain, but the memory of a world. The second glass was actually made before Hockney's, and I'm going to talk about the two windows which are flanking the central one. In 2013, the Royal Academician Huey O'Donoghue was commissioned by the Dean and Chapter to design a pair of windows for the east end of the Lady Chapel. This occasion was another royal anniversary, in this case, the 60th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's coronation. And Huey's design, the blue and white windows, um, is strikingly different from Hockney's. Huey chose to celebrate this anniversary in one of the Abbey's most ostentatiously royal spaces, by deploying all sorts of imagery alongside code in colour. The Lady Chapel, if you know it, is the far east end of the Abbey. It is uh, the most extraordinary explosion of stone and glass. Uh, it's the space above the royal vault. 
It's the burial place of Henry VII and his Queen Elizabeth of York, uh, which, of course, marks the end of the War of the Roses, that marriage. Um, and it also hosts, amongst many others, the joint tomb of Queens Mary and Elizabeth Tudor, two half-sisters, both daughters of King Henry VIII, and also Mary, Queen of Scots. It's packed with royal memory, this space. So Huey O'Donoghue chose a palette of blue and white glass, occasionally using background panels of gold, shot through in some corners with a slice of ochre or deep orange. The blue is a reference to the Virgin Mary, in whose honour this chapel has been dedicated for hundreds of years. This, firstly, is the chapel of a heavenly queen. He then proceeds to overlay this with a sparkling, blanket-like sprinkling of lilies, stars, and fleur-de-lis. This is royal and heavenly imagery designed to play upon and reflect the beauty of the carved high Gothic stonework with its slightly golden hue and its fine filigree carving. One great Tudor antiquary when he came into this chapel uh, is alleged to have said that the ceiling itself was one of the wonders of the world. If you haven't been in, do go and see it. Uh, it. It's quite like the ceilings of King's College Cambridge and Eton College Chapel, but it's later and it's by far the most developed and exciting version. Uh, it's held up by its own momentum. It is extraordinary. But the lilies and the stars are also a reference to the Virgin Mary, connecting this exceptional piece of commemorative 21st century art with the artistic language of the pre-Reformation space in which it is housed. This is memory of a layered variety, in many ways richer and very much more focused than Hockney's offering. This art, simultaneously so fitting and yet interruptive of the wider decorative style of the building, propels us into explicitly Christian memory and iconography of an earlier period, whilst also celebrating the Second Elizabethan Age. O'Donoghue has written about this window that the presence of lilies is also supposed to remind us of the spring, a season of new birth and renewal. There's another rather beautiful memory etched in here, which I think is, is quite moving. The artist of the original glass in the Lady Chapel, which has been long destroyed, Cromwell stabled his horses, by the way, in the, the, in the Lady Chapel. So all the art in the chapel, apart from the statutory, was destroyed. The statutory is the largest collection of British pre-Reformation statutory still in existence, but the glass and the floor were smashed up. Um, the artist of the original glass of this chapel, uh, a man who was the king's glazier between 1507 and 1517, was a Flemish artist whose name was Barnard Flower. His work has been destroyed, but Huey says through the use of flowers in this window, he just wants to turn us towards the memory of that original exceptional artist. So this art helps to treasure that very personal memory too. Just before we move on, um, in the business of art and memory, we should remember, just note, that the process of making stained glass uh, is a kind of partnership in art. The artist is dependent on someone to transfer their patterns and the colour into glass itself, and that artist, in turn, is frequently dependent on the glazier and on those who make and install the glass. So stained glass artistry is not dissimilar to music or to dance, dependent on more than one talent. Therefore, maybe it's an inherently riskier business than sculpture or painting per se. So, We've travelled in from under the Great West Door 
through past the Unknown Warrior, this collection of, um, of burials and memorials, scientists, musicians, poets, um, and we've looked at two stained glass windows, one in the north transept and one in the Lady Chapel. We're now going to, as it were, enter the building again, because on our journey so far, we've traveled on that great east-west axis that I spoke about at the beginning, which is what most people understand as the basic pattern of a church building, right? It is at that great west door we saw a moment ago that people now enter for worship. It's also now that great west door, not this one behind me, the great west door. Um, this is now the entrance for royal and ceremonial occasions. But it wasn't always thus. Since King Edward the Confessor built his palace on what is now the site of the Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament, there has been this close relationship between the Abbey and that seat of royal and subsequently parliamentary power. The great north door that you can see behind me offers a slightly different kind of entrance because in medieval times, this was the royal door, the Porta Regia, a great processional entrance to the abbey used by the king, probably simply because it was much closer to his palace uh, than the great west door. Now, to the modern visitor, this does slightly feel like you're entering the abbey through a side door, however grand the restored 19th century portico that you can see in this picture might be. Today, we try to ensure that worshippers enter via the great west door, whilst those coming for tourism enter via the great north door. Now, as my friend Neil McGregor, I know, set out in his lecture a couple of weeks ago, there is, of course, an essential distinction between tourism and worship. I should say the Abbey relies almost entirely on income from tourism to sustain its life, worship, uh, fabric, and ministry. We don't get any funding from the Crown, the government, or the Church of England. And whilst there is a really knotty and challenging conversation to be had about the principles behind charging uh, for tourists visiting, it seems to me that having a distinct entrance for worship, for which, of course, we would never charge, there are four services every weekday, um, and a distinct entrance for tourism is one modest way of acknowledging the particular perceived inconsistency of charging to enter what Neil called our father's house, whilst also insisting on the profound difference between the activities of tourism and worship. Originally, however, this door was the great ceremonial entrance for the king and his nobles. And whilst this was principally, I suspect, for practical reasons there remains a tantalizing hint of an echo in the fabric of the abbey about what the king would have seen when he entered this door. In fact, right in front of him was something which reconnected him with one of the most formational memories of medieval English kingship. King Henry III, who rebuilt the abbey to be reconsecrated in 1269, was a deeply pious king with an almost obsessive devotion to St. Edward the Confessor. Edward, who reigned from 1042 to 1066 and was canonized in 1161, was the single most striking example of Christian kingship in England and a model of vernacular holiness for the English people. Right at the center of Henry III's newly built Westminster Abbey was a new shrine of St. Edward. And we'll see in a minute just how obsessively Henry wanted to link himself to the saint. As the king entered the abbey via this great north door, he was presented with one of the most important stories from the life of St. Edward sculpted in stone. 
Today, it's very badly damaged and almost unrecognizable, not least in the context of the Victorian glass, which now surmounts it. You can just about make out these two figures. Can you see underneath the window? They've both been beheaded, and they look as if they're reaching towards one another. This is uh, an image of a famous meeting between St. Edward the Confessor, King Edward on the left, and someone who looks like a beggar on the right. There are various versions of the story. Essentially, Edward the Confessor, whilst he was king, was riding and was approached by a beggar asking for money. The king, as an act of generosity, didn't have any money, so he took off his ring and gave his ring to the beggar. Now, the legend is this. Sometime later, two pilgrims in Jerusalem met an old man who asked them to return a ring that he'd been given by Edward. This very same stranger told them that in six months the king would come to live with him. So the pilgrims are supposed to have asked, who are you? The man replied, I'm St. John the Evangelist. And supposedly this happened six months before Edward died. So the story became a form of evidence of Edward's undoubted sanctity, his generosity to the poor, and his association with St. John the Evangelist, disguised as a beggar. So this is the scene which welcomed Henry III into his rebuilt Westminster Abbey, which contained, amongst a huge number of other greatly prized relics, the ring of St. Edward the Confessor. You can see how central this story was to the cult of St. Edward from the famous Wilton diptych, I regret to say not in Westminster Abbey, but in the National Gallery, just up the road, for whom, to whom many thanks for allowing us to use this image. The young king you can see kneeling, the light's not great, but just in front here you can see a young king kneeling down. This is Richard II, and he's being presented to the virgin and child, surrounded by a plethora of angels on this side. Incidentally, the angels have been, um, have been drawn into the king's household. They're wearing the king's badge, the badge of a white heart. They've been, uh, they've been sort of drafted in as his extra servants for the day. Um, but he's, the king himself is surrounded by three saints, on the left, you have St. Edmund of Abingdon, St. John the Baptist on the right, and in the middle, that elderly, wise-looking king, St. Edward the Confessor, hold, uh, looking every inch, the archetype of the Rex Justus, carrying, you can see just about in his left hand, the ring. Now, there's lots to say about this picture. I wish we had more time, but we don't. Um, it was originally made in the 1390s. Um, and it might originally have been designed for the Abbey. Some scholars think that it was made to go in a niche, which is just still there underneath an image of Our Lady. It just about fits opposite the shrine. Another possibility is that it was made for the private chapel of Richard II, who's kneeling there in the Palace of Westminster, just over the river. Now, we know that Richard II came to pray in the Abbey at that shrine of Our Lady of Pew, where the image fits perfectly, um, maybe in front of this picture, before he went out to meet Watt Tyler and the rebels uh, during the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Now, tantalizingly, think art and memory here, um, the order of the three male saints you can see standing up here, St. Edmund, St. Edward, St. John the Baptist, tantalizingly, this corresponds to the ordering of the chapels dedicated to each of these saints in the abbey itself. So it is possible uh, that the connection between abbey, king, and picture is being uh, signified here. That is by no means for sure, but it is possible. 
Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the Abbey was well known for an extraordinary collection of relics, which was either destroyed or dispersed during the medieval period. The cult of relics was an essential component of medieval and late medieval Christianity. If you want to learn more about that, um, I strongly recommend to you um, chapter 5 of Eamon Duffy's groundbreaking study, The Stripping of the Altars, where he chronicles just how central the cult of relics was to medieval religion. In Westminster Abbey today, there remains almost no visible memory of this fundamental reason why so many pilgrims visited the abbey. They visited in part because they wanted to be close to the relics. There is just one pair of damaged wall paintings which are immediately under that defaced pairing of statues of Edward and the beggar, which nudges us towards the memory of that cult of relics. These pictures you can see in front of you are of the incredulity of St. Thomas. Thomas is the one kneeling down on the left. And St. Christopher, the big tall saint with the green background on the right. They're enormous. They're each three metres in height. And for centuries, they were obscured by two monuments which were only removed uh, and then the pictures rediscovered during cleaning in 1934. Now, here's the bit about the memory. King Henry III, the rebuilder of Westminster Abbey, whom we met a moment ago, had given a fragment of the cranium of St. Christopher to the Abbey's relic collection, alongside a thorn from the crown of thorns, and also, interestingly, a stone supposedly imprinted with Christ's footprint taken after the ascension. We shan't go too deeply into the historicity of any of this. Now, the style of these pictures is closely associated to that of the Abbey's then new high altarpiece, which is exceptionally damaged, but also in the Diamond Jubilee galleries. These pictures emphasize each saint's proximity to the risen Christ. St. Thomas, kneeling down on the left, is being dragged into Christ's side. You might know a later version of this picture by Caravaggio in the Potsdam Gallery, where, um, where Thomas is sort of forensically feeling his way into Christ's side. This is different. Thomas is being hauled into Jesus' side. In fact, if you look carefully, you can see Jesus is plunging Thomas's arm into his side. That's very important. St. Christopher, on the other hand, standing on the right, holds the Christ child, who in turn embraces Christopher's head. Yes, the Abbey's great relic collection, you've got it if you've been following me so far, included both the arm of St. Thomas, which you can see being thrust into the Lord's side, and that bit of St. Christopher's head. These images have been planned with some care. The arm of Thomas was a particularly prized relic of Henry III, who in 1244 had ordered a ring to be made for the reliquary which contained it. These damaged pictures of extraordinary fluidity and beauty are all that remain echoes of the memory of that very lively cult of the arm of St. Thomas and the head of St. Christopher. The centrepiece of Henry III's great church, consecrated in 1269, was of course the shrine of St. Edward and the ravishingly precious sanctuary area and high altar laid out in front of it. The centerpiece of this sanctuary, or the sacrarium as we call it, is the Cosmati pavement. This unique work of art, the floor you can see in front of the altar, um, there is no other version, by the way, of this very specifically papal art form 
in northwestern Europe. This is the artistic centerpiece of the abbey. The 30,000 pieces of Cosmati marble, stone, and glass which make it up this Opus Sectile pavement are largely recycled from earlier pagan temples off the south coast of Italy. Just one example, you can't really see them here. There are three enormous roundels of Egyptian porphyry in front of the altar. You can see them slightly better in that picture. Now, we know that the ancient porphyry mines of Egypt dried up in the year 50 BC. So these stones have their own hinterland, their own memory, their own history. The lapis lazuli, which provides the blue of the pavement, is more costly than its equivalent weight in gold. So we're looking at a pavement here of the most unimaginable richness. But what on earth is it doing here? The, the abbot of the day, Richard de Ware, almost certainly brought the material and the craftsman, the material was ready cut, by the way, uh, when he visited Rome for Henry III in 1266. He brought it all back with him. He'd probably been in Rome to have his election as abbot of Westminster confirmed by the Pope. I mentioned earlier on that Westminster Abbey is what we call a royal peculiar. That is, that it remains not under the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury or of the Bishop of London. Hence, we're given a considerable degree of freedom vis-a-vis -vis what we do and how we do it. But before the Reformation, the Abbey was a papal peculiar, directly answerable to the Pope in Rome. And this pavement, I think, reveals something of that Romanitas. The Abbey's patron saint is St. Peter. And when the first church was built in Westminster on this marshy outcrop known as Thorny Island, there was already a great Eastminster dedicated to St. Paul, a church in the East, St. Paul's Cathedral. So London was becoming, with this Romanitas, Peter and Paul, a self-consciously Christian city with a Christian polity, poised under the twin lights of Peter and Paul, the princes of the apostles. Now, Henry III, who rebuilt this church, and who is responsible for what we think of in architectural terms as the east end of the abbey today, had been crowned in Gloucester uh, because of the presence of his enemies around Westminster. He had a very long reign, 1216 to 1272. Henry had this great devotion to St. Edward. We know that he had paintings of Edward's coronation and of that story about the ring, on the walls of his bedchamber in the palace. One key to the richness of this pavement and the beauty of this area of the abbey is Henry's personal piety. We know as one great story in a monastic chronicle of how St. Louis, the then king of France, pressed on King Henry the need to listen to sermons at mass. And Henry impatiently brushed aside this advice and said that he didn't go to mass to think about God rather than to meet him. This is very revealing. This part of the abbey, the shrine behind the altar and the pavement in front of it, is about entering relationship with St. Edward, welcoming him as if he was both guest and host of the rebuilt abbey at Westminster. This pavement and what lies behind it is at the very heart of Henry's rebuilding project. One inscription in the abbey describes Henry as the friend of Edward, and in 1239, his son was born, named Edward. There is layer upon layer of memory here. Memories of Rome and Westminster's unique connection with the Holy See. Mythological memories which tap into imperial identity. Those of you who are classicists may know the phrase porphyrogenitoi. When the Roman emperor was born, 
he was traditionally born within the purple chamber, a chamber made of porphyry. So the use of porphyry here, the purple stone, is very much a reference towards an imagined imperial past, both for Henry and for Sir Edward. Now, the great central roundel that you can see in the middle of this pavement, towards the top of the picture, right in the middle, as well as being the central point in this vast mythological map of the cosmos, marks the spot where St. Edward's body was first buried in a shallow grave in front of the altar in the church which preceded this one. Now, when William, Duke of Normandy, the conqueror, came to Westminster for his coronation on Christmas Day, 1066, he insisted on being crowned on the confessor's grave to ensure visibly his own connection his own claim to the throne, and to insert himself into the narrative. And it's on this spot that every single English and subsequently British monarch, bar two, has been crowned ever since, just on that stone. And it's the spot where King Charles will be crowned uh, in May next year. So this central node point of British memory and identity is marked out in precious marble and ancient glass, a liturgical cosmic map totally incongruous in style with this otherwise Anglo-French Gothic church, and yet revealing so much of Westminster's memory and identity in one site of no more than 20 metres square. At the consecration of this new church in 1269, King Henry, his brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall, and his two sons carried the saint's coffin on their shoulders through to the new shrine. This was to be the Holy of Holies, the shrine itself was covered with cosmati work, just like the Sacrarium pavement. There's now very little of this art left on the shrine, which you can see in this picture, uh, because before we had a visitor shop, millions of pious fingers have taken away bits of the stone as their own mini relic. From Henry III onwards, kings wanted to be buried around Edward, much earlier than scientists wanted to be crowded around Newton or poets around Chaucer they were consciously tapping into a series of very deep memories of pre-conquest kingship, of this image of the Rex Justus, of anointed Christian leadership. In other words, they're tapping into memories which enabled a kind of theological and cultural PR. Around the saint himself, buried in the middle, are buried Henry III himself, that tomb also covered by a huge slab of Egyptian purple imperial porphyry. There's his son here, Edward I, Edward III and their two queens, Richard II, who built the nave some hundred years later and whom we saw depicted in the Wilton Diptych, and Henry V, the victor of Agincourt. The canopy which covers the shrine, you can see in front of you, the green, dark green and gold canopy, was made in the first decades of the 16th century, just years before the monastery was dissolved and the cult of the saint suspended. But here, too, there's an important memory. When Thomas Cromwell's commissioners were coming to destroy the shrine, they tipped off the monks that they were coming. And so the monks simply removed the saint's body from underneath this canopy. They buried it in a secret place in the church. They dismantled the shrine stone by stone, and they buried the fabric in one of the carp ponds in the garden until during happier years, about 20 years later, they simply rebuilt it 
This is the only English shrine still to contain the body of its saint, which was then inserted into the masonry so nobody could really do it again. So it was all then resurrected, put back together, the saint's coffin encased in the stone where it still remains today as a site of great holiness, great devotion, great pilgrimage. Now, our final piece of art uh, is the Abbey's most recent commission. But it takes us back to a time before any of this. When we celebrated in 2019 the 750th anniversary of Henry III's new church, the 750th anniversary of Edward's reburial, we wanted to commission a new piece of art to mark that occasion. And after quite a lot of discussion, we settled on an icon, which was made by Father Zinon, who is widely thought of as one of the leading icon iconographers uh, working today. He's based in Russia. I sent Father Zinon various images of St. Edward, including the famous one in the Bayer Tapestry. Um, and he responded with this extremely powerful image of a saintly and just king. But why, you may ask, a Byzantine icon to sort of further complicate the artistic language of this already rather crowded space? This is an orthodox image rather than a Latin Western picture or a statue. Well, the answer is this. St. Edward is one of the very last saints to be venerated by both East and West. He was born around a half century before the so-called Great Schism of 1054, which separated Western Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians. He's honored by a wide diversity of Christian communions, and we wanted to emphasize Edward as a unifier, a common figure, one whose memory can remind the churches that we have more in common than that which divides us. So to conclude very briefly, Memory is a capricious thing, not least because we forget certainly as much as we remember. There is always an editing process, and we've learnt, rightly, largely, to be suspicious of grand narratives. However, the stories we tell one another and ourselves about identity and history can helpfully be interrogated through as well as promoted by art. We don't always know Rowan Williams puts it very beautifully. We don't always know where our debts begin and end. Art can help connect us into that indebtedness. Today, I've discovered, uh, I've discussed some of these memories and bits of art uh, as related to Westminster Abbey's history and origins, to its role as a place of burial and memorialization, its place as a preeminent site of British Christian pilgrimage, and its fundamental identity as a house of worship. Each generation contributes towards the palimpsest of this complicated, unique, holy place. A century ago, when the unknown warrior was buried, few would have believed that the great ceremonial entrance to the abbey would be crowned in the mid-1990s by those statues of diverse modern Christian martyrs from all over the globe. As we enter a new reign, with further conversations about the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, about our shared and contested stories of heritage and identity, I hope that artists, architects, liturgists, and poets will continue to offer interpretation, and perhaps a little more challenge, to how, who, and what we remember. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.